As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. This is Bill Benter, a reserved, unassuming, and media-shy Pittsburgh resident who made almost $1 billion by gambling on horse races. The man was a mathematical genius who was on the cutting edge of both computer science and statistical modeling. So, it is widely assumed that with his business knowledge, that he could have made money just about anywhere. In a rare interview when asked about his success in horse racing, he said, I was driven only partly by money. I believe I probably could have made more money in finance but that didn't interest me. I didn't get into professional horse racing because it was hard, but because it was said to be impossible. Benter grew up in a Pittsburgh suburb called Pleasant Hills. He was a diligent student, and after graduating from high school, he went on to study physics in college. His parents had always given him a lot of freedom. On his vacations, he had hitchhiked through Europe and into Egypt and driven through Russia. In 1979, at the age of 22 though, he put that freedom to the test. He left school, boarded a Greyhound bus, and went to play cards in Las Vegas. Benter had been engrossed in a book called Beat the Dealer, written by a math professor, Edward Thorpe, that describes how to overcome the house advantage in blackjack. Thorpe is today credited with inventing a system known as card counting. Keeping track of the number of high cards dealt and then betting big when it is likely that high cards about to fall. It takes concentration and lots and lots of hands to turn a tiny advantage into profit, but it works. Benter worked at a 7-Eleven for $3 an hour and took his wages to budget casinos to employ these methods. On a good day, Benter might win only about $40, but he had found his calling. This all started to turn around though in 1980. He'd just applied for a job as a night cleaner at McDonald's when his friends introduced him to a man who would change his life. Alan Woods was the leader of a card counting team that had recently arrived in Las Vegas. Woods was then in his mid-30s with a swoop of grey hair and cold blue eyes. Once an insurance actuary with a wife and two kids, he one day decided that family life just wasn't for him and began travelling the world as a professional gambler. Woods impressed Benter with his tales of fearlessness, recounting how he had snuck past airport security in Manila with $10,000 stuffed into his underwear. Most appealing of all, he pursued the card counter's craft with discipline. His team pulled its cash and divided winnings equitably, having more players reduced the risk of a run of bad luck wiping out one's bankroll, and the camaraderie offset the solitary nature of the work. This is all very similar to the techniques displayed in the movie 21. Benter was impressed and joined the squad almost instantly. Within six weeks, he found himself playing blackjack in Monte Carlo, served by waiters in dinner jackets. He felt like James Bond, and his earnings grew to a rate of about $80,000 a year. With this success, Benter soon abandoned any idea of returning to college. This lifestyle all came crashing down though in 1984, when Benter, Woods, and some of their partners earned a place in the Griffin Book, a blacklist that a detective agency circulated to casinos filled with known troublemakers and card counters. 
This list made it almost impossible for them to keep playing in Vegas. They needed to find another game. Woods knew that there were giant pools to tap in Asia, and that the biggest of all was run by the Hong Kong Jockey Club. Founded in 1884 as a refuge for upper-class Brits who wanted the feeling of England in their little colony, the club changed over time into a state gambling monopoly. Its two courses, Happy Valley and Sha Tin, were packed twice a week during racing season that extended from September to July. Hong Kong's population was only about 5.5 million at the time, but it bet more on horses than the entire US population, reaching about $10 billion annually by the 1990s. Hong Kong's racing used a paramutual, also known as a totalizer, or an exchange system. Unlike odds at a regular bookmaker, which are set in advance and give a decisive edge to the house, paramutual odds are updated fluidly and in proportion to market betters' wages. Winners split the pool and the house skims a commission of about 17%. In this case, the house was the Hong Kong government, and the skim provided as much as a tenth of Hong Kong's total tax revenue. This is remarkably similar to a stock exchange. The exchange itself just facilitates the exchange of money and securities, but does not get involved in their price at all, and makes a profit only by charging fees on the exchange. But all of this was to say, to make money, Benta would have to do more than just pick winners. He needed to make bets with a profit margin greater than the club's 17% cut. This was a surprisingly tall order, considering that most gamblers are expected to lose about 20% of everything that they gamble on horses. Benta needed guidance on how such a system might work. He went to the Gambler's Book Club at Vegas and bought everything he could find on horses. There were lots of systems promising incredible results, but to him, they seemed a bit flimsy. Most had been written by journalists or amateur handicappers. Few contained real math. Benta wanted something more rigorous, so he went to the library of the University of Nevada at Las Vegas, which kept a special collection on gaming. Buried in stacks of periodicals and manuscripts, he found what he was searching for, an academic paper titled Searching for Positive Returns at the Track, a Multinomial Logic Model for Handicapping Horse Races. As thrilling as that sounds, this is all what it meant. A horse's success or failure was a result of factors that could be quantified statistically. Take some variables like straight line speed, size, winning record, the skill of the jockey, the weather on the day, the condition of the track, etc. Weigh them in terms of how much they are likely to impact the outcome, and presto, outcome a prediction of the horse's chances of winning. More variables, better variables, and finer weightings improve the predictions. The authors of the book actually weren't sure if it was possible to make money using this strategy, and being mostly interested in statistical models, they didn't try that hard to find out. There appears to be room for some optimism, they concluded. Benter taught himself advanced statistics and learnt to write software on early PCs with green and black screens. Meanwhile, in the fall of 1984, Woods flew to Hong Kong and set back a stack of yearbooks containing results of thousands of horse races. Benter hired two women to key in the results to a database so he could have more time to spend studying regressions and developing the code. It took nine months, but in September of 1985, he flew to Hong Kong with three bulky IBM computers in his checked luggage, ready to take on Hong Kong. Benter and Woods rented a microscopic apartment in a dilapidated high-rise. 
Their office was an old wooden desk and a table piled high with racing newspapers. Twice a week on race day, Benta would sit at the computer and Woods would study the racing form. Early on, the betting program that Benta had written spat out bizarre predictions, and Woods, with his year-long head start studying the Hong Kong tracks, would correct them where he saw fit. They used a telephone account at the jockey club to call in their bets and watch the races on TV. When they won, they were satisfied smiles only. At the end of the day, they weren't gambling, so hooting and cheering was not in order. Between races, Benta struggled to make his algorithm stay ahead of a statistical phenomenon known as Gambler's Ruin. To explain Gambler's Ruin, imagine a game of heads or tails where you are making $1 bets on the outcome. Now let's say you have $10 to play with and your opponent has an unlimited amount of money. You might think that neither player is likely to walk away with any more than they started with, and mathematically, this is true but it does not take into account swings or streaks of one outcome or the other. Even though a game of heads or tails is completely fair with no advantage to either player, the play with $10 is guaranteed to lose to the play with unlimited money given enough flips of the coin, because it only takes 10 losing guesses for the $10 player to be out. With enough flips of a coin, a losing run like this is almost inevitable, but for the play with unlimited money, this is no problem at all. In Benta's case, he was the player with $10, and the gambling population of Hong Kong was the player with unlimited money. Only, in this case, he was fighting up against a 17% disadvantage, making him work twice as hard just to break even. One approach familiar to Benta from his blackjack days was to adapt the work of a gunslinging Texas physician named John Kelly Jr., who had studied the problem in the late 1950s. Kelly imagined a scenario in which a horse racing gambler has an edge, or a private wire, of fairly reliable tips. How should he bet? Wager too little and the advantage is squandered, but if he bets too much, financial ruin beckons. Remember, the tips are good, but not perfect. Kelly's solution was to wager an amount in line with the gambler's confidence in the tip. Benta was struck by the similarities between Kelly's hypothetical tip wire and his own prediction generating software. They amounted to the same thing at the end of the day, a private system of odds that was slightly more accurate than public odds. To simplify, imagine that the gambling public can see that there was a horse running with an odds of 4 to 1. Benta's model might show that the horse is slightly more likely to win than those odds suggest, say a chance of 1 in 3. That means Benta can put less at risk and get the same return. A seemingly small edge like this can turn into a big profit. And the impact of all of that bad luck can be diminished by betting thousands and thousands of times. Kelly's equations applied to the scale of betting made possible by computer modeling seem to guarantee success. This was what Benta desperately needed, a system to say ahead of this gambler's ruin outcome. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. 
You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. So, did this all work? Well, no. By the end of Benta's first season in Hong Kong in the summer of 1986, he and Woods had lost $120,000 of their original $150,000 stake. Benta flew back to Las Vegas to beg for more investment, unsuccessfully, and Woods went to South Korea to gamble. They met back in Hong Kong in September. Woods had more money than Benta and was willing to recapitalize their partnership, if it was renegotiated. I want a larger share, Woods said in Benta's recollection. How much larger, Benta asked. 90%, Woods said. That was unacceptable, Benta said. Woods was used to being the senior partner in gambling teams and getting his way. He never lost his temper, but his mind, once set, was like granite. Benta was also unwilling to budge. Their alliance was more or less over. In a fit of rage, Benta wrote a line of code into the software that would stop it from functioning after a given date. This was a digital time bomb, even though he knew it would be trivial for Woods to fix and find later. Woods would keep betting algorithmically on horses. Benta was sure of that. He resolved that he would too. Benta's Las Vegas friends wouldn't stake him at horse racing, but they would stake him at blackjack. He took their money to Atlantic City and spent two years managing a team of card counters, brooding and working on his racing model in his spare time. In September of 1988, having amassed a few hundred thousand dollars, he returned to Hong Kong. Sure enough, Woods was still there. The Australian had hired programmers and mathematicians to develop Benta's code, and was making money. He had moved into a penthouse flat with a spectacular view of the harbour. Benta still refused to speak to him. Benta's model required his undivided attention. It monitored only about 20 inputs, just a fraction of the infinite factors that can influence a horse's performance, from wind speed to what it ate for breakfast. In the pursuit of mathematical perfection, he became convinced that horses race differently according to temperature, and when he learnt that British meteorologists kept an archive of Hong Kong's weather data in southwest England, he travelled there by plane and rail almost instantly. A bemused archivist led him to a dusty library basement where Benta copied years and years of figures into his notepad. When he got back to Hong Kong, he entered the data into his computers and found that it had no effect whatsoever on race outcomes. Such was the scientific process, I suppose. Other additions, such as the number of rest days since the horse's last race, were more successful. And in his first year, after returning to Hong Kong, Benta won $600,000. One of the most surprising statistical additions came from a man that Benta employed called Bob Moore, a manic New Zealander whose passions were said to be cocaine and video analysis. He would watch footage of past races to identify horses that should have won but were bumped or blocked and prevented them from doing so. It worked as a kind of bad luck adjuster and made the algorithms all that little bit more effective. The next racing season at the end of summer of 1990, Benta had actually lost a little bit this year but was still up overall. He had hired a team of employees ranging from consultants to independent gamblers to journalists to coders and mathematicians and just about anyone that could help him improve his model. 
When the volume of bets rose, he recruited English-speaking Filipinos from the ranks of the city's housekeepers to relay his bets to the jockey's club's telephone bet lines, reading wages at a rate of about eight a minute. At his point, Benta's gambling operation was starting to look a lot more like a hedge fund trading floor than a gambling house. A breakthrough came when Benta hit on the idea of incorporating a data set that was hiding in plain sight. The jockey club's publicly available betting odds. Building his own set of odds from scratch had been profitable, but he found that using public odds as a starting point and refining them with his proprietary algorithm was dramatically more profitable. He considered the move his single most important innovation. And in 1990 to the 1991 season, he said he won about $3 million. The following year, the Hong Kong Jockey Club phoned Benter at his office that he'd established in Happy Valley. He winced, remembering the meaty hands of Las Vegas pit bosses on his shoulder. But instead of threatening him, a Jockey Club salesperson said, you are one of our best customers. What can we do to help you? The club wasn't a casino trying to root out gamblers who regularly beat the house. Its incentive was just to maximize betting activity. So more revenue was available for Hong Kong charities and for the government. Benter asked if it was possible to place his bets electronically instead of over the phone. The Jockey Club agreed and installed a system that Benter called the Big CIT, a customer input terminal. He ran a cable from his computer directly into the machine and increased his betting exponentially. Throughout 1997, a shadow loomed over Hong Kong. After 156 years of colonial rule, the British were set to hand the territory back to China on July 1st. There were news reports of Chinese troops massed at the border, and many islanders feared it would be the end of Hong Kong's freewheeling capitalism. China tried to reassure residents that, for the most part, they would go unimpeded. Horse racing will continue, and the dancing parties will go on, said Deng Xiaoping, the former Communist Party leader at the time. Benta faced an additional and more peculiar anxiety. A month before the handover, his team won a huge triple trio jackpot. They were in the middle of an epic winning season, up more than $50 million. The jockey club normally put triple trio winners in front of the TV cameras to show how, for example, a night watchman had changed his life with a single bet, very similar to the lotteries in the United States. This time, nobody wanted to tout that the winner was an American algorithm, though. The club had come to see the syndicate's success as a headache. There was no law against what they were doing, but in a paramutual gambling system, every dollar that they won was a dollar lost by someone else. If everyday punters at Happy Valley and Sha Tin ever found out that foreign computer nerds were siphoning millions of dollars from their pools, they might stop playing entirely. Benta had his big CIT privileges revoked, and on June 14th, something even worse happened. As one of his phone operators called the Telebet line and was told, your account has been suspended. Woods was also blocked. Club officials issued a statement saying that they had acted to protect the interests of the general betting public. Benter flew back to Vegas as he did every summer to think about his next move. He reread the club's statement. Phone betting was out, but nowhere did it say that he was banned from betting altogether. He got an idea. As in his blackjack days, it would require a low profile. One Friday evening that autumn, after the handover of the territory to China, Benta paid for a hotel room in Hong Kong's Bayside North Point District. He made sure to get space on the ground floor for easy access. 
He had helpers hauling laptops, a 50 pound printer, and stacks and stacks of blank bedding slips. On Sunday morning, race day, they checked the internet connection and put a do not disturb sign on the door. At 1.45pm, 15 minutes before the first race, the laptops received lines of bets from Benter's Happy Valley office, the printer began to suck in blank tickets and churn them out with blank marks in the relevant betting boxes. Eight minutes to starting pistol, Benter grabbed a pile of 80-odd printed tickets and a club-issued credit voucher worth $1 million and bolted for the door. Across from the hotel was an off-track betting shop. It was loud and very smoky inside, but he found an automated betting terminal and got to work. He started feeding in tickets after tickets, one after the other, until the screen flashed with a message, betting closed. Benta hurried back to the hotel room to see which wages had hit. At 2.15pm, the laptops downloaded the next package of his bets, and it was time to go again. Simultaneously, other teams hired by Benta were doing the same thing in all different parts of Hong Kong. Benta's solution to the phone betting ban at the time was very time-consuming and required him to manage teams of runners who risked being robbed, but it was almost as profitable as his old arrangement. The new political dynamic in Hong Kong under the rule of China brought about some unwanted attention for Benta. Hong Kong's tax authority began to investigate the syndicate. By law, gambling winnings were exempt from taxation, but company profits weren't. The question was whether the syndicates had moved beyond conventional betting and started behaving more like corporations. The implications would be dire if the Inland Revenue Department decided to tax profits retroactively, meaning that they would go after all of the revenue ever generated by Benta. When tax agent asked Woods for a list of his investors, he fled to the Philippines. Benta continued to operate his in-person betting scheme throughout the turn of the millennium, with his model expanding to track more than 120 factors per horse, but the logistics were providing a grind. He felt disconnected from his gambler friends in who were a nocturnal clique of geeks and rogues. He had started mixing with a more professional crowd, adapting their dress code of smart suits and ties. He had taken a more active role in the local Rotary Club chapter, and Benta himself embraced the model, service above self giving millions of dollars anonymously and visiting improvised schools in China and refugee camps in Pakistan. For the first time, he thought seriously about quitting and moving back to the US. If it was all had to end, he thought, I've had an incredible run. It was then, in November of 2001, that he decided to have a final punt on the Triple Trio. This was the holy grail of Hong Kong horse racing, a bet that involved listing the first, second and third runner in order on three separate races. This doesn't sound too challenging, but in reality, there is over 10 million possible outcomes, only one of which would win the prize. Benter had avoided major prizes like this since 1997 for fear of angering the jockey club's management, but this jackpot was just too big to resist. Wagering on it was something of a lark, albeit an expensive one. He spent $1.6 million on 51,000 combinations. If he won, he decided he would leave the tickets unclaimed. Club policy in such cases was to direct all of that money to a charitable trust. After the third race, when Bobo Duck, Mascot Treasure, and Frat Rat romped across the finish line, Benta sat across the road from the track in a plush office, ignoring the live feed of the action that played on the TV screen. The only sound was the hum of a dozen computers. 35 of their bets had correctly called the finishes in the first two races, qualifying for a consolation prize. 
and one wager had correctly predicted all nine horses. It wasn't immediately clear how much he'd made, so the two Americans attempted some back-of-the-envelope math until the official dividend flashed on the TV eight minutes later. Benta had won a jackpot of 118 million Hong Kong dollars. Later that year, Benta would retire back to his hometown of Pittsburgh. The biggest jackpot in Hong Kong racing history would go unclaimed and eventually be distributed by the jockey club to charities all throughout Hong Kong, just as Benta had intended. I really like the story of Bill Benter and his algorithm for horse racing because it is remarkably similar to how most financial markets operate today. Most people think of Gordon Gecko characters with the inside scoop on company performance being the main actors in stock exchanges around the world, and while that was true some time ago, today these markets belong to computers that work off big data sets to find opportunities to buy a security for less than it's worth. Thanks for watching guys, I hope you enjoyed the video. As always, I have left my email in the video description, or if you would rather, I try my very best to reply to as many comments as I can in the comments section. Uh, and if you did enjoy the video, please consider liking and subscribing, it really helps out. Thanks guys. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.